0: What's up, guys? It's your boy, Johnny Bananas, and I'll be covering all the treachery, deceit, backstabbing, and murder from Season 2 of The Traitors US on my podcast, Death, Taxes, and Bananas. I'll be joined all season by my fellow castmates to swap stories, provide all the behind-the-scenes antics, and sordid details from filming. So, sally forth and join me for Season 2 of The Traders every Saturday on the Ringer Reality TV podcast feed. And support staff to, to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The
1: Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have no official designation at The Ringer, but my guest today on the other line does. Joanna Robinson. Welcome.
2: Oh my God, what a thrill and a joy. And I love sitting here and pretending we didn't just talk for two hours about another TV show. This is a was, big day fresh. of podcasting we're, for us. We're fresh. So
1: to be clear, my usual co-host Chris Ryan is on tour. Like all the famous bands. Uh, he is out on the road with Bill and Mal and Sean on the Rewatchables Cold Weather Tour. I, I feel like it's sold out, so I won't say go see them in Philadelphia tonight, but I wish you could. That sounds really fun. Um, and Chris asked me, am I going to go solo today? And I said, oh, Chris, no. I'm going to go Joe Joro. And wow. we double booked. We did record an episode of Stick the Landing earlier, which is TBD. That'll be out in a few weeks. But now we're going to talk watch. We're going to do watch stuff. You ready?
2: I'm so ready. Uh, Never been more ready.
1: Very thrilled to have you here. We're going to talk about uh, the new Amazon Prime show, Expats, from director Lulu Wang, which debuted um, over the last few days. I guess the third episode's coming out tomorrow. You have also been doing great work on True Detective Night Country. So ahead of this weekend's fourth episode, we're going to... I feel like we can do a cross the streams pod, uh, talk about it from maybe some different perspectives than we had in advance of the fourth episode. Um... But before all of that, I had to I had to do it to him. Yeah. Joe, you are a uh, frequent host on the Ringerverse podcast. You and Mal do the House of R podcast together. The last time you were on the watch, it was to promote your fantastic book, MCU. And I kind of want to pick your brain about the mm. state of big IP franchises. Now, we talk about this stuff a lot um, from our perspective particular ornery perspective on this show. Yeah. I feel like you are more in those IP streets and um, maybe have, in some of these cases, have more skin in the game. And so I, I we, we didn't plan the segment so much as I kind of want to just know what's the temperature in your mind of where these things mm. are. Are they in a good place? Are there good things coming? Are we misreading it? Is there stuff happening behind the scenes that we don't know about, but you do due to your um, contacts or a um, knowledge of the deep web? um so let's go through it the first one obviously okay. has yeah. to be marvel and yes. when we last talked about the book you know, we were all and i feel like on your press tour there was a lot of like have we reached the end of the road here and that may have been yes. just before the marvels tanked um and before echo was re- like
2: in the in the midst we were right. of the marvels yeah
1: exactly so where are we here in 2024 what has changed what hasn't changed and what's your read on things
2: Um, I would say, well, and also there's been the sort of official Jonathan Majors. Oh my God, we didn't talk about that. Uh, It's so great. Yes. Yeah. I think that just hyper recently, I would say it's a bad look for Marvel that uh, Steven Yen and Io Debris both exited Thunderbolts. It's like the cool kids don't want to have anything to do with Marvel anymore. Right? That's what those two departures feel like. It's not
1: just... I mean, first of all, when a movie is delayed as long as Thunderbolts is and you have the strikes, like scheduling things are going to happen. But sure. those two actors in particular who just cleaned up at the Emmys, who are, right? I don't know if they are household names, although I was hosting Saturday Night Live this weekend, like they are incredibly valuable uh, performers just for cachet. I mean, they're beloved. They're talented. They're on, the, they're on the come up. They're who you want to have under a seven picture deal. And now they're out and- of the
2: movie. And they're gone. Um, so it was just there was a point in Marvel's trajectory where they could have anyone, mm-hmm. anyone they ever wanted would do a Marvel picture. Uh, and this is, you know, no longer the case, I would say. Um, I think what's interesting to look ahead for Marvel in 2024 is there's only one Marvel movie coming out this year. And it's Deadpool 3, which is yeah, half a Marvel movie, half not a Marvel movie. I think uh from from my behind the scenes perspective, I would say something that's probably quite obvious to anyone listening, which is that they know how much is writing on that movie. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the reason why they've cleared they've cleared the decks in so many different ways. Like do you remember when we got we had like four or five Marvel shows a year, right? And we're going to have like a movie and maybe Agatha? Like I I'm I could not say with confidence and dare, that we're going to have a Marvel TV show. And Daredevil show is officially
1: and, not 2024.
2: Correct, right? Because they're sort of back to the drawing board. With and that. Echo, so, I feel
1: like when you were on here last time, you were you were willing to say that that might not be an A list product. I feel like it seems like they did the best they could. They did get a pretty good media cycle out of being like, "We made it hard R TVMA." We're steering into it, and that seemed to get some positive response in theory. But the show hap- not happened. Good. It was not good. I
2: mean, I think I think the upshot of Echo. Actually, the positive responses I saw were from people being like, "Hey, sometimes this feels like this is Reservation Dogs," and <laughs> when the show the felt cast, like it was, yeah. yeah. And when the show felt like it was Reservation Dogs, people really seemed to be really into it. Um, it's, it's such a funny inversion so,
1: of this moment where, like a couple years ago, we were like, "Oh, all the things we like in culture, Marvel can do their version of it," and now right. we're parsing Marvel products for little scraps of things we preferred in other iterations. It's the reverse, correct.
2: And so this idea of like, is Echo going to turn, like a, a question I got asked on Press tour was, um, is Echo going to turn everything around? And I was like, no, I mean, absolutely not. They're binge jumping it. Like it's not, that's not what's happening here. But could Deadpool 3 turn the tide? I think possibly So turn the narrative in a certain direction. So,
1: so a a, direction. about that, this is sort of the theory I've been kicking around. It's not a theory, it's just more of an observation, which is, Marvel seems to either understand or it's just behaving as if its current cinematic universe is damaged goods. It is pushing its chips into alt-universes and other things, which Mm -hmm. is what makes Deadpool 3. Deadpool 1 and 2 were not Marvel movies. They were Fox movies. Now it's a Marvel movie and all the implications is they're going all in on it and we're going to see a lot of people and a lot of stuff that we hadn't before, they are now the ones clout chasing with another studio's franchise to reboot their own. They've cleared the deck, so a popular anticipated movie will come out with a Marvel name attached to it. Like, is this is this an overread of it?
2: It's not an overread of the current situation, but I would just say that they're they just did it with Spider-Man for Sony. Exactly. Many, yeah. You know, and so it's not a new new I, thing for I, them. I
1: guess for me though, the the Spider-Man thing, this with this, the co-production with, this, with Sony, with the Tom Holland movies, is the narrative was, and this was spelled out wonderfully in your book, Sony was like, we don't know what to do with this anymore. And Marvel's yeah, like, yeah, we'll yeah. help. And so that was, well, Feige's The Golden Touch. He saved Spider-Man for Sony. Uh, this seems like th- Ryan Reynolds personally, because I don't think Fox wanted to make Deadpool for a long time in the original version of it either. Right. Um, they're going to save it for him. And then the other thing on the horizon that people are waiting on is... For Fantastic Four to be confirmed, which, again, based on, I I don't think this has been confirmed, but my understanding of the project is that it's alt-universe, that, like, it's, it's not, it's going to establish the Fantastic Four as the Fantastic Four where they've been the Fantastic Four. It's not an origin story. It's something that was building to Secret Wars. Um, That's, again, being like, hey, look at this thing we can still do if we don't have it touch our other stuff.
2: It is wild that the uh, nostalgia fumes coming off of, like, Deadpool 3, which, again, rumor has it. I mean, we're going see Jen Garner as Elektra. Like, rumor has it we're pulling in yep. a lot of actors who played X-Men for Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similar, to, you know, in the same vein as the most recent Spider-Man movie where we are wrapping our arms around the Andrew Garfield mm-hmm. films and the Tobey Maguire films and the Tom Holland films, and it's all one cohesive Uh, Joint, that is, I think, what they're trying to do with Deadpool 3, where they can wrap their arms around. I mean, because the X-Men franchise, spotty as heck, right? But like, try to wrap their arms around plucking out what has worked, redeeming what didn't work, but make it funny now that Ryan Reynolds can, like, kind of direct address to the camera and make fun of it. Um, I understand why that's something they want to do. They want to make it all feel coherent. And like they're in on the joke and that's what Deadpool can offer to them. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is. It, it, I have n- rarely seen a toppling of a giant the way that we've seen Marvel in just the last year. It was like a year two, is what it felt two like. Two quick things on you this point,
1: and And I'm putting you on the spot with this. You, you're sourced. You've reported stuff. Um, if it's no comment or you have nothing to add to it, that's okay. But I'm curious about two things in particular. One is... There seems to be a very credible final Fantastic Four cast list that is just discussed mm-hmm. and known. Um, Pedro right. Pascal, Vanessa Kirby, Joseph Quinn, and Evan Moss Backrack. It has not been confirmed or announced. Do you know why that is? Do you have any insight into what's going on there?
2: I don't, but again, that sort of speaks to what they're chasing. If they're chasing Evan Moss Backrack and Joe Quinn, that's, ch- you know, yep. you're, that is an exact same demographic as it would be interested in seeing A O N Stephen Yun and something. You know what I mean? Like they that's that's who they are interested in investing in. And um I'll be very curious to see. I don't I don't know why. I mean I I heard that that was supposed to be announced at New York Comic Con in the fall. Last year. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: maybe they're all showing uh, up in Deadpool know. three. Um hmm. what about any other, th- any other thoughts on the Jonathan Majors-Kang thing? You know, again, not speaking specifically about Jonathan Majors and his conviction and the case that led us here, but more specifically, as soon as that conviction happened, Marvel had the press release ready. They cut bait. He's done. He is not in these movies anymore. He is not okay. Kang. Um, yeah. Clearly, this did not happen that day when the verdict was was announced. Do you have any insight into the thinking behind that decision? But I guess maybe the richer question is, do you think this is, again... The specifics of a criminal case I'm not asking you about. Um, We Mm -hmm. all wish that wasn't the case, and we all wish none of this had happened. Um, But is is the jettisoning of Kang, in this version of Kang, a good creative thing for Marvel, in your opinion?
2: I actually think yes, because I don't think it was working out the way that they wanted it to work out in the first place. And I think in terms of timeline of decision-making, I would look towards... When Jeff Loveness, who uh, was writing the Kang uh, Dynasty films, like when he exited.
1: And it became something that's else. W- mm-hmm.
2: That's when I would look to like when the actual decisions were made. Mm. And I think what's interesting about the Loki season two finale uh, is that contrary to what was reported, I think it was in THR, you know, when when some anonymous insider said you know, they've totally screwed themselves. The Loki finale sets it up that Kang is super important. for the, No, the Loki finale sets it up where you can just tie it off. They did it. They handled Kang. So they had, that was, mm-hmm. that's in the edit. That's in the edit of the Loki season two finale is that they already knew that they were going to do that. And, so, and, and by you know. the way,
1: I, I'll do some reporting on my own. I, we're talking about it as if it's like in the past, like, there, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon. They are trying. This is a very big deal. Still, as I drove into the studio today, I drove past the beautiful restored Vidiot Theater in Eagle Rock, and um, mm. the marquee said Wonder Man, and there were there are trucks around. So I think they're filming that show here right now. Um, so the great not, work goes uh, on. Yeah, I
2: did. I did not come here to bury Marvel. No, I, you came I, here as a Marvel's favor because I wanted to
1: talk to you, and here <laughs> and then I handed you a shovel. <laughs>
2: No, but when like Marvel's good, it's great. And I want it, I just want everything to feel the way it does when it's firing on all cylinders. That's what we all want. We want the stuff to be good. Um, you know, even if, um, you know, according to our Lord and Savior, Christopher Nolan, we are in a post IP world now. Um, I think IP not going anywhere. That's something we're going to talk about a little later. Yep. And I think um, you just want. What we're handed, the sequels and the franchises that we're handed, to feel as complex and juicy and satisfying as they can be. So we just want these things to be good.
1: Speaking of, oh, so I did want it as a as a bit one to 10, 10, super confident. Mm. One, oh boy, where are you with the MCU just today, February first, uh,
2: twenty twenty four? I'm at like a six or seven. Okay. Um, And then I think, you know, I think they have a a real chance this year, um, with Echo in the rear view, I think they have a real chance this year to, you know, drop some gemstones and and win back some favor. Some
1: infinity gems, if you will. Mm, Um, Let's move across the comic book hallway to the DCU, which has been announcing some stuff about James Gunn's vision. Millie Alcock from House of the Dragon was officially cast as Supergirl. Superman Legacy, James Gunn's movie, is amping up to production. It's added a few more cast members. Yeah. I, I don't actually have any idea where you stand on any of the DCU stuff if you are a fan, if you're hopeful. So in the spirit of like one to 10 with these announcements, it's more of a blank slate. Where are you with this? And what is your, what is your read on this from your corner of the Ringerverse?
2: On the one to 10, I would say for this, I'm at a eight possibly. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, disappointing storytelling out of the DCU, James the, the issue I'm I'm really interested to see what James Gunn will do mm-hmm. I like to see a Suicide squad Suicide Squad movie obviously Guardians 3 is sort of like being held up as the last great thing that Marvel did etc but um I just don't it's, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around James Gunn plus Superman mm. it just doesn't seem like the DC superhero for the James Gunn sensibility. That sort of ironic, like, I, that's, I, you know, kind of gross I sensibility love this. Look at the, this. Is a
1: Look, I've been told, not by Kaya, who's doing a great job here, but, like, I've been told, you know, friction makes podcasts work. I disagree with you. I am okay, anti-DCU generally. I was always a Marvel kid. Yeah. I, I don't really have any opinion about DC superheroes. I'm not in the tank for them. I'm not going to show up no matter what, as I have proven with my wallet <laughs> over the last 10, 20 years. <laughs> um yeah. I think the thing about James Gunn is that he's a softie. He's a giant, sentimental softie. And what made the Guardians of the Galaxy movies work is that they were him working his way through the gross-out tra- trauma. <laughs> trauma, not trauma, trauma although trauma, kind of, yeah. T-R-O-M-A. Um, <laughs> Roger Corman stuff that was his DNA and is like shocking. I'm going to tweet crazy stuff because that's how I interact with the world to being like, actually, I just want my friends, animals, and humans to hug. Superman, I think, like he is for many... Uh, people of a certain age is the best of us and like the most perfect and pure and the best comedy of a wonderful and pure icon is of the Christopher Reeve gentle slapstick stuff. The people around him can be messy, but he's not in the same way that like Drax doesn't get the joke. You know what I mean? So I just, I have wildly weird high expectations. I think this movie is going to be great. Uh,
2: I'm really excited about the cast. You mentioned Millie Alcock, but like, Rachel Brosnahan, as Lois Lane, I think yeah. is ten out of ten. No notes. Nick Holtz has never done a thing wrong in his life except for the Dracula movie he made last year. True, but otherwise um, he's
1: always good, and he's playing Lex Luthor. Always he's always interesting. He's always good. funny and honest with weird choices. He's great. The the
2: Noho Hank, ho Hank from uh Iberia is going to be here.
1: Also, who Incredible. the name of the actor who's playing Superman is something Craneswit. Um I David Craneswit. David David. And David, yeah. as I've said before in this podcast, he's from Philly. So if Superman comes from Philly, like I, I'm on board. Um I what I
2: The other thing that's ringing a slight alarm bell for me mm. is that we've got uh there's going to be a Green Lantern in this, there's going to be Hawk Girl in this, uh Metamorpho yes. like we are we're, we're we're putting in a bunch of Justice League characters into this so, movie. And that, on the one hand, it makes sense to me because James Gunn loves a team-up. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, concerns me slightly because uh, the whole walk-before-you-can-run issue that DCU had in the first place where they made Man of Steel. And I am like the number one Zack Snyder hater, but I will be in his corner for this and say, he wanted to make Man of Steel too. Yes. And they said- no. Yes. Give us Batman v Superman. Give us Justice League immediately. And that was, you know, the downfall of the DC. I think you're, I think you're pointing
1: out that that's, that's the biggest worry of this, which I think the mantra that has just not been accepted for various corporate reasons is guys make one good movie. You cannot run before you walk, make one good movie. And it did seem to be like, Superman Legacy, the very intentional using of the Frank Quitely artwork, I think, Mm -hmm. um, from Grant Morrison's brilliant All-Star Superman run, suggested that James Gunn was going to give us a movie that encapsulated the spirit of one hero that would then have a trickle-down effect on the larger cinematic universe should they get to make it. But this is like Kevin Feige is also making the movie. So he has to seed his own garden, and he's in charge of tilling the garden for the next 10 years. That's my concern too, is if his eyes get bigger than his stomach and he makes a movie about an entire universe in one, which would be a bummer, honestly.
2: It's very possible that like this hawk girl, this Green Lantern, this Metamorpho, et cetera, are are cameos, mm-hmm. barely in it. Like that's possible. It, it, I just I just get have Justice League tra- totally. trauma trauma, not trauma, like, you know, still in my bones. So yeah.
1: Uh, I, I I'm completely with you. So What was your number on this one? Eight. Eight, because again, we're talking about one movie. We're not talking about the state of something. Things are always best at the beginning. And
2: I will say the slate that they announced was really, like, Mm -hmm. I'm a nine on the slate. I was just, when I, I was like, okay, obviously they're starting with Superman. That makes a lot of sense to me. But it was almost like, I almost felt like James Gunn, of course, you couldn't help but dish yourself up like the prime rib. But I was like, oh yeah. but I think you could have been Better suited on one of the but other types. I, titles I also announced.
1: think I, this hasn't been reported, but my I I feel like he probably pitched a Superman movie that led to the larger conversation about taking over all of it. I, that that, or or he had the take. Mm. I I don't I, we don't know which led what, but because it is sketchy that he was like, who knows who will make Superman when maybe it's his me. deal point his deal <laughs> points weren't done. And yeah, he I mean he Dick Cheney himself, right? He's like, I'll lead yeah. an exhaustive search. <laughs> mm. Okay, but speaking yeah. of the, and I'm going to obviously reveal my own thick thoughts here. The let's why don't you just why don't you guys just relax and make one good movie? Uh, we're going to move on to Star Wars. We yeah. belabor that way too much on this podcast, but that's why I want to get your sense as someone who is mm. a who is more generous, I think, than I have been to some of these products and projects. You have a deeper connection to some of them. What's your take on where that universe stands right now?
2: I might, I might be more positively inclined than you are, but I, <laughs> That's I setting the bar. <laughs> it's
1: kind of a low bar.
2: I like Mando. Season three was very bumpy for me. Ahsoka was somewhat bumpy for me. Um, I, you know, I think we both agree that Andor was incredible, and so it's to Lucasfilm's benefit that on the horizon is Andor season two and Acolyte. Leslie Headlands. Mm-hmm. And I have heard from people who have seen a couple episodes of Acolyte that it is tremendously good. I am unreasonably excited for Acolyte, particularly because it is unhooked from a lot of what we've seen recently with, like, the Obi-Wan show or the Ahsoka, like, unhooked from the larger continuity. Um, and they, and they you know, left
1: it alone. And- I mean, th- that this show has been in pre-production and development and in production yeah. and now in post-production for an incredibly long time, which hopefully yes. is a good sign. They, they let it cook.
2: Cass is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yes, please, please make a movie again. Ever is definitely on our minds. Though I am worried about the project they've announced via Dave Filoni. So, if I'm choosing to accentuate the positive, which I think you've brought me here to do, in contrast to your orneriness, <laughs> I would just say Andor season two and Acolyte are it, two incredibly projects. Yeah, I think
1: projects. weirdly. If we were just looking from the vantage point of February 1st, 2024, I would be more bullish on their TV slate, which also includes Skeleton Crew, which we know nothing about. But if that's more of like a kid's on a journey kind of thing and Jude Law's in it and John Watts, who made Spider-Man, is involved, like, okay, that could be, if they made a kid show, okay.
2: I've been secretly excited for Skeleton, well, not secretly, I've been talking about it, but I've been excited for Skeleton Crew, Um, a little worried, I think they just bumped it back. Mm. So that makes me a little worried.
1: But My, and, and, sometimes and, bumping back is a good sign. And then you but. have Acolyte and you have Andor. My concern is Acolyte and Andor seem to have nothing to do with the larger plans, certainly the cinematic plans um, from from Lucasfilm. And that remains a big question mark with the movies that have been announced, mm. uh, whether it's Daisy Ridley returning as Ray in movie TBD or it's Dave Filoni being like, guess what? This is a movie now, this thing I shot with puppets in Manhattan Beach. Okay. I don't need to do that again today. Um... <laughs> Nearer and dearer to your heart, definitely, than than mine. Game of Thrones-verse. Today, some news broke that our old pals Dan and Dave, Weiss and Benioff, are using their Netflix deal for more than just Three Body Problem, which is coming out um, next month. They are executive producing a show called uh, Death by Lightning with a remarkable cast of Matthew McFadden, fresh off of another Emmy for Succession, and Michael Shannon. Um, But this is a dramatic retelling of the assassination of President James Garfield. When they said they were doing a historical thing, I was like, did they get Netflix to do Confederate? Confederate? No way. Bring it back
2: into the news cycle. Uh, oh. They seem to have adjusted. Well, that was, remember those, that week on the internet? That was a
1: legendary week. That
2: um, was incredible.
1: The, uh, anyway, I only bring this up to say they've moved on. I, I don't know if anybody's wanting, was asking for this show, but with this cast and this pedigree, sure. Um, Game of Thrones itself remains uh, big business for HBO or Max mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. House of D coming back uh, this year. What's your larger take on that show heading into second season but also the larger universe because a lot of stuff has been announced. A lot of stuff has never been put into production. Where you? F- how are you? How are you?
2: How, how am I? It's a good question. On the Thrones front, um, I would say Hot D season two, extremely excited for. A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms is the what they have said is going to be the next show that they put into production. Right.
1: So Knight of the Seven Kingdoms is based on some of George R. R. Martin's prequel series, right? That's like the Dunk and Egg.
2: The the Dunk and Egg novellas. Stories. Yeah.
1: And briefly that was being developed, or not briefly, we have no idea, by Stephen Conrad, who is fiercely beloved by certain fans of culty TV because he made Patriot. Um, Mm -hmm. He's no longer a part of it. It is now straight to series on HBO from the pre-existing hot D, I like that, brain trust of um, Ryan Condal and George R. R. Martin and then also a writer called Ira Parker who seems to have written the pilot, at least the one they're going off of. Who knows? I'm getting some slight this has happened before vibes because remember, um, you certainly remember, (laughs) HBO... Greenlit a pilot, yeah, that they with were Naomi Watts, with Naomi yeah. Watts that they were very unhappy with because it was apparently quite different from what Game of Thrones had been, and they immediately backtracked and they were like George R. R. Martin and Dragons, and then they made House of the Dragon, similarly developing yeah. this with Stephen Conrad, and now they're like, you guys know how to do this, so these guys seem to be shepherding this whole corner of the universe for them. Verse, mm-hmm.
2: um, yeah, Another the Seven Kingdoms, you know, which is. Uh, That almost seems to me to be a favor to George because this is the the show that George has really wanted for a very long time. So uh, not a a favor. Like, HBO is not in the favor business. But, you know, sort of like, all right, George has given us a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can be guided by him. He's really high on this concept. Um, Duncan Agar, you know, it's hedge knights. It's, you know. Two people wandering around and and uh, solving crimes. Essentially. Is that what a hedge night is? And, I, it's not related yeah. to hedge
1: funds. It's a different. <laughs> it's
2: not okay. related to hedge funds. No, um, that, that
1: feels like the show George R. R. Martin would want to write now. But
2: <laughs> hedge funds. I feel
1: like that's that's um, more reason his interest is. Um, but
2: I, there's a bunch of others that are in developments that I don't know we'll ever see. There's one called Sea Snake, which mm-hmm. is a prequel based on Steve Toussaint's character mm-hmm. uh, from House of the Dragon. There's ten thousand ships. There's, they're getting into. Anim- George R. 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 Martin was recently blogging about how they want to make a so strong foray into. He is writing. Into- he's
1: just not
2: writing the books. Oh yeah, okay. he's he's he, he, he loves a blog. <laughs> Who doesn't? And he and he loves football and he loves wolves and he doesn't like writing books anymore. I mean, and that's just honestly, you know, same. so relatable content. Honestly. Um, he talked about how much uh, they want to move into the world of animated, and he cited Blue Eye Samurai as like mm. sort of a let's let's go for that tone. So they're pushing that. The thing I will say, and this is not breaking news, but Reddit, you can pretend that I broke news if you want to, but I'm not backing this with any like, this is not confirmed, but I've heard the Jon Snow series is kind of DOA. Like Kit Harington was like, we're going to make a Jon Snow series, and I've heard it's not, I've heard it's not going, but I, you know, I could be wrong.
1: Well, he's on Industry Season 3 with a different type of snow, as Chris has joked before, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more focused on that. Um, but that, yeah. that. But that is interesting. I mean, I think that the, it's, you know, it's not easy for us, but when we talk about, especially the perspective you've had, chronicling the rise of, of Marvel, and I said this when you were on the pod before, and you've said this many times, like, it really was almost accidental that, they, that it worked. And then you see in various ways of the, the things we're talking about, just the management of these things is so delicate and i think hbo has you know from a purely like business perspective as someone you know my opinions about the shows whatever i think they've been judicious i think they've been careful obviously there's budgetary reasons for that too because they can't just write 200 million dollar checks for shows about dragons all the time but i think they're right to be careful but i think the other thing about it is like how do you grow how do you maintain how do you grow your audience how do you maintain the audience how do you keep them fed and the fact that there have been so many projects hinted at, and then even more projects that have gone further than probably will, we may ever realize, only to be, you know, to be cut down or or, or walked away from is, it's kind of remarkable.
2: A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, I think, is interesting as a potential next project because source material exists. right? And I think that's, putting that up against a nebulous Jon Snow series— that is based on whatever fan fiction they want to write about what Jon Snow would do after the events of Game of Thrones. They they know, they're so smart over at HBO. They know how we feel about Game of Thrones and how Game of Thrones was strongest when it was an adaptation and then when it became fan fiction became mm-hmm. much weaker. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're like, well, let's go with the show. House of the Dragon is based on Fire and Blood, a book. It is significantly fleshing out that right. book, but it is based on a book. So they have text that George R. R. Martin has written in, in the Dunkin' Egg novellas. So why not put that into production? That makes a lot of sense to
1: me. Do you, in addition to telling me your number score for where you feel about the management of the Thrones <laughs> IP, the House of Thrones, Yeah. do you think, like, one thing that I took away, I don't know how where you are with these shows. We've never talked about it. But, like, I like The Boys. I, I really enjoy mm-hmm. that show. I had no time at all for Generation V for the spinoff. Not only because I didn't like it, just point blank. Yeah. I was like, I don't need more. I'm good. Like, the yeah. boys is yeah. everything and now you've sliced off like Paul Sorvino and Goodfellas like a sliver of the other thing and you're telling the me garlic. that's a whole meal. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm good. And I kind of wonder about that with Game of Thrones which is to say like it is smart financially to feed the beast to give people more dragons and alt history of a world that we know but I do think it might be dwindling returns for people. So, I mean, I'll just, as a casual, I don't, I'm not as engaged.
2: That's so funny. I don't think of you as a casual, but um, well, professionally, I've I, I've not I, been
1: a casual about Game of Thrones. But I think in terms of my deep, abiding, day to day, when I'm not in front of a TV or podcasting, interest in Westeros, it's it's casual. I don't I don't read the histories,
2: and I think that's fair. But I think I I, I do think we're I just don't think we're running on vapor because there's yet. a lot. There. I think yeah yeah I don't think I don't think it's we're ever going to get back to Game of Thrones level Mm -hmm. with this IP, but I do think that there's plenty for them uh, to plunder there. I don't want there to be, I don't ever want to go back to a couple years ago when we were getting all these Star Wars shows and all these Marvel shows and it was just sort of, you didn't have time to savor Mm -hmm. anything. And my, my view and my enjoyment of, like, I don't think there should always be a Game of Thrones show on. That would be good for Mal and me and our business, mm-hmm. but like, I don't think that that's good for the storytelling. I think we should get like, maybe let's say max two Thrones shows a year. On max. Right? On max. Mm-hmm. And with something like House of the Dragon, that's only going to run for four or five seasons. So like...
1: Is that a promise? You know. Were you, were you uh, just saying uh, I that
2: for me? Sw- I, <laughs> I swear to you. I vow this to right. you. Um, But I... Uh, so they're not... They're not making any of these shows with this is going to run for we're, seven or eight years. Which is also the TV making these now, shows
1: to be fair. I mean yes, nothing true, runs true. very yeah. long anymore. Um that's good so point. what's your number?
2: Um I hate to do it to you. It's 9. I, I want you it's to do high. it. This is
1: great. This is what I want. It's, it's high. There should be some positivity yeah. on this show today. <laughs> for we're once. back to ba- We're back to business on Monday. <laughs> um finally another one that's near and dear to your heart and near and dear to one of my daughter's hearts is uh Potter. Um Yeah. The there is a TV show that is kind of happening, we think.
2: They seem very confident that it's happening, it's, I, I, but they have not picked a showrunner yet.
1: Yes, I I mean, I behind the scenes stuff like uh, they have been casting a net, they are looking for people. Yeah. Um, it's
2: they have they're auditioning people, but they haven't picked they haven't
1: picked. So. And I and it, what's not clear to me, maybe you have more insight into this than I do, both in terms of just like what you've heard reported, or maybe even what the fandom may want, which may not be what showrunner joanne rowling wants are they redoing the books or is that just what we yeah. thought there's no, no there's no. nothing else happening here
2: no there, well here's what your pal and mine he's not mine he's your pal casey has said is that they're doing 10 seasons so that's more than there are books but that's just because some of the books are a real thing very later long on, right mm-hmm. so yeah so during 10 seasons or 10 years i think is what they said uh, they're not incorporating like Fantastic Beasts stuff. They're basically pretending. Sorry, Eddie Redmayne. They're kind of pretending that didn't happen at all. I think. Um, sort of like Eddie so Redmayne. Sorry,
1: no offense, but I got one best actor. I was thinking about that the other day.
2: He really did. I, he's probably he a really lovely really guy. Did. but
1: That's wild. That's wild.
2: It, yeah, there. It's one of those wins where you're like, how, how did that? Ha- how did we let that happen? Okay, so, um, so and, and and Casey has promised a very faithful adaptation to the books. So.
1: Right, and I get, that also tracks with my understanding of behind-the-scenes stuff over the years. Where obviously, and people, everyone who has been in charge of Warner Brothers when it was AT and T to um, mm-hmm. e- e- Jason Killar, uh to now um, um, Zaslav, everyone has been asked, like, this is the biggest IP jewel in your in your uh, vault. Why aren't you using it? And my understanding is that many people have tried, but that um, J.K. Rowling has, or at least made a you know made pitches, made entreaties. In various forms, but that she mm. she's in control of it, and she will decide what is done and what isn't done, and of course, she has very strong opinions about that, and so this is the show that we will get.
2: Uh, yeah, and, and she settled it. She made a deal with them in last mm-hmm. year about what degree of control she gets over this TV show in particular, and I should say on the IP front, I mean, you know, we love to talk about on-screen storytelling in terms of film and television, mostly television. It's called The Watch, but- Hogwarts Legacy sold 22 million this video game. units. This is a video game. They're building a new Wizarding World of Harry Potter section at Universal Orlando. There's the Cursed Child, I guess. It, I mean, I know that it was a hit, but post-pandemic, I guess it had like a, a renaissance. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So the I've, I've just been asked recently if I thought Potter as an IP was washed. Oh. Especially with like a lot of what's going on mm-hmm. with, Joe Rowling and the things that she likes to say that I find awful. Um, and I don't think it's washed, I think. And I think especially when this TV show hits, we're going to see a huge yeah, I, re, re-blooming of
1: interest. It's just an here. interesting, and maybe ultimately, brilliant and successful uh, management of a property because, I agree with you, I mean, as the, as the father of daughters. Father of da-
2: daughters. Uh, yeah. But as, a, as, as,
1: as dad core, like, it is evergreen. This is a new classic of lived life at this point in terms of it's just generational and people love it and they fall in love with it and then they love the stores and the chocolates and all of this is controlled by her and what's notable is that there haven't been other voices in the room and there haven't been um spin-offs or stories told from other perspectives which is one of the hallmarks of you know, obviously, these are messier, older, legacy idea uh, IPs. But the other things that we're talking about, and maybe that does speak to the importance that Warner sees in having George R. Martin really be in the room now for everything that they do and using his text, because it's it's not to your point. Like it's not sexy. Uh, Harry Potter should never be sexy. I want to be clear about that. But it's not necessarily sexy to talk about this as like the hot thing. Um, but it doesn't matter because the people who care are being respawned every generation and they're buying it all over again and reading the books all over again. So it may have fallen out of like, you know, what's the dark and gritty version of adult Harold Potter? Uh, we're not doing that, but maybe we don't need to. The, the magicians? Uh yes, it's What yes. I'm hearing
2: from you is that you want me to send you some like Harry Potter fan fiction so that you can uh, enjoy the dark, pretty like, sexy side of Harry Potter.
1: I would like more. I mean I have evolved I've you know I've been working out some stuff oh, okay. on my own. Oh. So I thought maybe we could do a trade. Uh, let me
2: know if you need a beta reader. I'm happy to read I your, really appreciate your, that. So okay, content. so where where yeah. are
1: you with Potter? What's your number? Then we can move on.
2: I mean it's it's tough because we just don't know in many details about the show, but uh eighty eight seven eight.
1: Because I also I'm think like seven that. eight means like you're confident in the current state of the of the project of the, the of,
2: theoretical. Yes, yeah. In,
1: in the sense like if they were they don't need to be making a lot of stuff to have a high number. maybe you, it's an eight or nine because there's only one thing
2: the the last thing I want to say about this before we move on is that despite the fact that like Marvel's gonna be have a quiet year, mm-hmm. DC is gonna have a quiet year. Uh, Sony's gonna have a quiet year, all this sort of stuff on the superhero front, uh, the sheer tonnage of sequels and spinoffs and reboots and et cetera at the cinema, the multiplex, mm-hmm is staggering. So we've got Doom Part 2 is coming. There's another Godzilla Kong movie somehow. Furiosa, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, Inside Out 2, Despicable Me 4, Twisters, which I'm actually awesome. very excited for. Um, Deadpool 3, Alien Romulus, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. We just found out today that it's called Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, not Beetlejuice 2. Great. That's good. Gl- Gladiator 2, Wicked Part 1, Mufasa colon the Lion King, somehow another Karate Kid. That's but, what's happening at the box. This
1: office, Madam Web sorry. erasure will not stand. That's the only movie that I'm. Checking <laughs> and cra-
2: for. and Craven the Hunter. You're right. Mm-hmm. I'm Thank so sorry. You. Yes. Yes.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
1: IP portion of our conversation, let's talk about some uh, OP. That was a surf brand, Ocean Pacific, but I'm trying it out. Original property? Can we do that? Ooh, okay. Although not really, yeah, it's an I like adaptation. It. I wanted to talk to you about the new Amazon Prime series, Expats, which premiered last week. It is based, it is not original, I guess, in the sense that it is based on a 2016 novel, The Expatriates by Janice Y.K. Lee. But this was notable, the series is notable because it is created by, directed by Lulu Wang, who made um, a fantastic movie called The Farewell. And um, in a way, this feels like a nice um, rejoinder to the funeral Chris and I had last week for Autori uh, television, because this is a not cheap adaptation of a book spearheaded by a very, very talented on-the-rise filmmaker starring Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman, shot entirely on location in Hong Kong. Um, the first two episodes premiered last week out of six. What do you think, both as a viewer, but then I'm also curious to have the conversation about what is this show even doing in the larger TV landscape?
2: I was surprised, like, you know, when you and I are batting around sort of what we might talk about, I was surprised at what a murmur this show debuted just, like, very quietly. Mm-hmm. A Nicole Kidman-led uh, show by a brilliant filmmaker. Like, that's, um, but... Then again, watching the first two episodes, I was like, oh no, I have seen Nicole Kidman do this Mm -hmm. many times now on Prestige Television, this character. So perhaps um, everyone feels like they've had their fill. But- A reason I think it's really interesting to talk about, and I liked the second episode much more than I liked the first episode, I should say. So, like, first episode I was pretty mid on, and second episode I was like, okay, I would continue watching this. So just Uh, for people people
1: to bring people up to speed, it is a show set in 2014 in Hong Kong, the backdrop of the Umbrella Movement protests. Nicole Kidman plays a expatriate woman living with her husband and family in Hong Kong. They are very wealthy business people. They're driven places. They have housekeepers. Um... There is an incident that is spelled out over the first two episodes affecting one of her children uh, that also involves uh, her close friend who lives in her building, who's played by uh, Sarayu Blue, who's an actor I've liked a lot in other things. And then a young actor named Ji Young Young Yu, who plays a younger Korean-American woman who's also living in Hong Kong. They all become embroiled in something, but it is a deeply, like, it's a very, very serious, it is not a very light show about essentially the loss in many ways of a child. Yeah. Uh, it is not an easy watch for that reason. And uh, yeah, so I'm with you about.
2: I Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think the second episode, in the first episode were post-incident and the second episode were pre-incident. And so there is room for a bit more lightness, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that is going to be something we'll enjoy for the rest of the season. Something that's interesting is that I think it's episode five is a feature length um, episode that they premiered at TIFF. Mm. So they, because it's a, it's a sort of standalone ish episode about the live in, the Filipino live-in domestic uh, mm-hmm. help that they have. And so it's sort of like a side story. And so when uh, Lulu Wong like, debuted it, at TIFF, she was like, I know it's weird to start with episode five out of a six-episode season, but it makes sense and its feature length. So she could sort of debut it as a film-ish type project. But I, what I think this is really interesting about this show is a question I have all the time when I think about brilliant storytellers, and I think she is definitely a brilliant storyteller, is what's the best platform, what's the best way for you to get your story out? Mm-hmm. Like, it's you know, she could have easily done another film. That would have been the obvious mm-hmm. next move for her. She decided she wanted to do television. Okay. She signed – in 2022, she signs a first-look deal with Amazon television. Mm-hmm. Amazon, by all reporting, is a very chaotic place yes. to get your projects made. And in that – in the deadline report of her first-look deal that she made in 2022 – They list a bunch of projects, none of which are this, and none of which seem like they'll probably ever come to fruition. And I've heard that again and again and again from people who sign overall deals with Amazon is that- they get pitch after pitch after pitch sort of rejected and they wind up making something that isn't really anything that they want to make in the first place. And it has place, to do – lo-
1: there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons that I've come to understand is that Amazon TV ultimately – it has its own – people who work there obviously and Jen Salke is running it and they've been making TV and movies for a while. But decision-making at Amazon is still done in a very dot-com – Uh, global quadrant way where a lot of different teams take ownership over a lot of different decisions. So you have to please a lot of different rooms full of people for every yes that you hope to get along the way, which kills a lot of projects and kills a lot of uh, artistic hope.
2: I've heard a lot of stories about um, that very thing in terms of rings of power. But Mm. um, I will say that uh, on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is getting, like, rave reviews. So, yeah. like, Amazon that, certainly capable of putting out absolute gemstones. Amazon stems, contains but, multitudes. Um, and yeah, we
1: will absolutely. talk about but, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith on this podcast next week.
2: But this is just such a fascinating move from a, you know, a, a filmmaker who comes out with an A24 film, wins an Indie Spirit Award. And then this is what she does with that. It's not a blank check, but it is certainly, you with know. a cachet.
1: Yeah, there's an opportunity. Yeah, to.
2: fill in. Fill in some numbers here, and um, I don't know. What do you What do you think about I, I, something I like to ask showrunners? And mm-hmm. you are a showrunner, something I like to ask showrunners is like, where do you think the best place to debut? What's the What's the golden ticket for? Oh, I got a show on this platform, and I don't know. I'm curious like, where, Like, where should the, the show answers.
1: be if it was on a different network or service? You mean? Yeah.
2: What's What's the What's the best place? Because I think with Amazon. With Prime, things get lost unless they really pop. They get really easily well, lost. So, take—I
1: totally agree with you. I think big picture, this is a tough look for it because Amazon is one of those companies that can fund your dream project, but can also shrug and lose your dream project, and mm-hmm. I, it's easy to get lost. So, I—I I, I don't know the answer for that because I think that the answer would change what the product itself is. Mm-hmm. The, in a way, this is that my reaction to the show is not dissimilar to some of my reaction to the curse last week, which is I love audacious filmmaking and i love people being given the chance to explore and chase after their muses to where to their heart's content with longer runtimes, with bigger casts potentially with bigger budgets even than they're than they're used to um that said there's something that is fundamentally and this is a loaded word that i wish i was, could avoid disrespectful to the medium of television when that happens and so what i like about the show is i like lulu wong trying stuff out and there are things that only a filmmaker could do here for example the way it starts with this grid of people talking about being the person not who were the victim of an accident but who caused an accident what happens to mm-hmm. them there are these lovely silent shots of Hong Kong there's a there's a, something that you feel like was important to her and probably was important to no one else in the pilot where Soraya Blue and Nicole Kidman danced to Blondie in a noodle shop after midnight and I'm like yes I give me that I want a filmmaker who and again I've only seen two episodes but what I understand is what you alluded to that it builds to a larger tapestry of stories in an experimental way. Like, that's wonderful. I, I love that. And that alone might keep me sticking with the show. But all the way back to your question, Nicole Kidman, as a grieving rich lady abroad, is an HBO show. And it's an HBO show told with a different level of melodramatic rigor. And I mean that as a good thing than this show is interested in doing. So what you get instead is an interesting melange of styles and ideas and aesthetics that don't so far equal a successful meal for me. Um, there are a lot of different pieces here that are noteworthy, Yes. and I don't want to I don't want to disparage it, but it's not fully working for me.
2: Not the correct use so far of Jack Houston, I will say. Um, if you look at the Nicole Kidman TV project trajectory, you've got, of course, Big Little Lies, The Undoing. These are HBO mm-hmm. shows of sad rich wine mm-hmm. mom and then you've got
1: 9 perfect strangers 999
2: nine, nine perfect mm-hmm. strangers it was called on hulu which doesn't pop at all uh, they're making and i got
1: this it it popped for them
2: they're okay 9 Ten. 18 Ten. perfect Ten. strangers Ten no i don't know perfect but they're making a sequel okay. <laughs> series it did
1: it did big numbers for them
2: it did it okay well, then screw my point uh if they're making a sequel series that i don't know i just i just I want everything to flourish and I want everything to be right where it needs to be. I think there is just a difference between... I think there was this interesting shift where everyone f- ran to Netflix because what Netflix is promising was uh, tons of money with little oversight, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think there's... The worm is turned on that and then it's back to HBO. HBO Sunday night mm-hmm. is is the brass ring. And I don't know. It's just something that I like to think about in terms of if you had a big win and you wanted to tell a TV story,
0: mm-hmm.
2: where would you want to go? And uh, I guess to your point, it depends on what TV the, story you want to tell. But
1: but but I mean in terms of developing, if you want to develop something with people, I think the answer from everyone in this industry is the same. It's HBO and FX. They're the yeah. people that has the most entrenched teams that have yes. been there long enough. And there's a different level of fear in all these offices than there used to be. But those teams have been there for a long time and they have a track record and they know how to work with people of different levels in their careers and they know how to execute and give the notes and then not give the notes when necessary. The other places aren't as established. Now, that said, there are brilliant executives and at all these companies doing their best um, and different versions of what success might mean and might, you know, changes from, from room to room. But yeah, I think, I, I, but that said, if you want people to see your show, you want to be on Netflix. There's only one answer. That's the only place anyone's going to see anything, it seems like, increasingly. Uh, the Nicole Kidman thing I do want to say is, I mean this with great respect to one of the most esteemed and rewarded actresses of our time, kind of over it. I, it. It's just because it is, a, it is a, it's a different haircut, which I appreciate, but it is a uh, <laughs> two tone two different wigs, we yeah. have seen before. And the yeah. other thing about it that I think was not really taken into consideration by the filmmakers is that she cha- She is a star whether you think in the sense of like a great actor or just a famous person, whatever. She is a charismatic, gravity-altering star. And when you put her into a production where everyone else around her is either up-and-coming or TV, um, and I don't mean that disparagingly because you and I love TV, but they all look small. And particularly in the case of Soraya Blue, who is, I think, a full 12 inches shorter than Nicole Kidman. The framing <laughs> is odd. But yeah. like there's an actor yeah. named um, named Brian T who plays Nicole Kidman's husband. And he may well yeah. be a very good actor. I haven't seen enough of him to know. I also didn't watch Chicago Med. When you put an actor from you're not, Chicago You're not, you're
2: not in on the you're not in on the Chicago shows? Uh,
1: just not the doctor stuff. I want to see uh, I want to see people. Firemen I want to see fires put out.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. don't
1: want to see victims of the fire cared for. No, no, no. That's uninteresting k- No, no, no.
2: no, no. Uh, I care I about a tree to burn buildings, man. not
1: people. My point is, sure. and I again, I feel bad singling out any actor because this would be true of any actor except maybe a movie star or Hugh Grant, you know, in The Undoing.
2: I was going to say, you need a Hugh Grant opposite her, yeah.
1: Nicole Kidman's spouse in this is going to seem small, you know, and change the change the gravity of the screen. And so I, I struggled with that. Like, I thought, I couldn't tell if it was budgetary reasons that the cast is mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman and a bunch of other good to decent people or if it is very director shit where director's like only I see the, the capabilities of these actors that have not been given the chances before and I will give them everything which is a beautiful thing about directors but it doesn't always work and I don't mean to be I, I don't want this to come out as like I'm talking shit about actors on this show it's just that Nicole Kidman is just like it's just like dropping a zoo animal into a pet store it's just different
2: <laughs> Um there's also I think that's a great point. There's also, I don't know if you noticed this, a lot of really strange ADR.
1: Yes, um, very much.
2: It's, it's absolutely bizarre. I don't yeah, The show I starts know. with some
1: very weird ADR where the camera, and yeah. ADR for people who don't know is when you add dialogue to a scene, usually on the back of an actor to help explain something because you didn't either you didn't pick it up in production or you, needed, you realized in the post you needed more. But like the first time we see Nicole Kidman, she's talking to a party planner uh, and the camera's circling Nicole Kidman's back and it's pretty clear that almost everything she's saying is ADR, that it is not in the room.
2: And so that it gives this very stilted, like that opening scene, I was like, is Nicole Kidman not a good actor in this scene? And that's what an overuse of ADR, I mean, ADR here and there, you won't notice, but if it's constant, then you will. And uh, she does some stuff later that I think is absolutely phenomenal. She's Nicole Kidman. But to your point, I feel like we've seen this from
1: her. It's just surprising because I think that we- are both here for TV shows. Like, I'm, I'm, and we're here for Lulu Wong projects. And this feels yeah. like a potentially odd collision of the two. But again, what you said, the fifth episode premiered at a film festival. So maybe it's worth sticking with. Before we go, I yeah. did want to cross the, the true detective streams. Um,
2: <laughs> I love that. Like, Chris was like, we should do a team up. And you're like, yes, when without you're out of you. time. I was like, Chris. who's we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you guys are recapping it also on the Prestige TV mm-hmm. feed. We are heading into the fourth episode, so we are at the halfway point. In a previous podcast that we recorded today that we won't step on too much, um, you made a really good point about how in the velocity of a television show, the midway point is when the ascension stops and you kind of are plateauing and all of the theories and excitement and fun of the beginning begin to descend into the atmospheric whatever of reality of what the show is going to be. So we're at that point. Specifically... Ah, screw it i'll just say it. we did twin peaks we should say it. It, it we sure did yeah we did it it's my favorite show it'll be on sick to landing in a couple of weeks i wanted to talk to you about this moment of true detectives night country through the lens of the twin peaksiness of it whether that's worth yeah. chasing whether that's valid whether it's giving you like positive echoes or not because as chris and i've been saying and i'm sure you and rob have been saying too like the supernatural element of this season is much more so far, much more literal and pronounced than in previous seasons, and is Absolutely. doing more of the lifting. And I'm on the fence about how I feel about that.
2: Totally. I agree with you. I think, um, especially in season one of True Detective, but you know, I've I have some fond memories of ghosts around the margin of season three of True Detective. Um, that idea of Plausible deniability: Is it supernatural, or is mm-hmm. it just in the mind of the person? And then here in True Detective: colon, Night Country, we have characters saying we're at the edge of the world where the you know True Detective:
1: Colon is a Chicago <laughs> Med spinoff. Just to be clear,
2: which which you won't watch because it's about healthcare. I'm also you just not interested in healthcare. like
1: GI like gastro doctors. No, thank you. Go on.
2: Fair enough, but uh, but corpsicles, you're all in yeah. on. Yeah. Um, we're at the edge of something. We're at the edge of the world and the barriers are thin and that's why you see ghosts and stuff like that. It's, um, I don't know. And 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 uh, Isla Lopez, who is incredibly talented, is a horror. That's her preferred genre. Mm-hmm. So we're getting not just supernatural, but like in episode three, object terror, horror, of creepiness. Um, uh, it, yeah, I'm not- In I'm the case
1: not... of like Lund waking up to say yeah. that like your dead mom says it, hi. I mean, it's- hello,
2: Evangeline, yeah. like that shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so um, I, I don't know that I I love making answering the question because I think the beauty of the first three seasons was that question. Mm-hmm. But with Twin Peaks, it's funny. I keep calling things peaksy, is something that I will say, but I should probably, to sound smarter, say Lynchian, but I won't. The Peaksiness <laughs> of, of this season of True Detective feels very intentional and goes back to a question that we asked on that Stick the Landing episode that we just discussed, which is the idea of evil. When you talk about, you know, when Chris is talking to you on the watch about, hey, Andy, I know you don't remember this, but this is what <laughs> is connected <tissue> to Fascinating. <laughs> season one yeah. of your Detective. The spiral thing, that is stuff I don't really care about. Okay. And I don't really care for, um, I don't need Matthew McConaughey to show up. I don't need any of that stuff. The spiral stuff is interesting to me because... That is a connective iconography similar to the connective iconography that we get throughout Twin Peaks properties that speaks to an elemental evil that exists in the world versus people are inherently evil or bad. And this is a question I think is always interesting. Yellowjackets asks this question too is like, when evil happens is it coming from our humanity or is it coming from something external mm-hmm. to a supernatural that is infecting us mm-hmm. and that's an i don't know what do you, what well, do you I, think about that I think, question or how it's handling that
1: i think you've you've i think you've very well identified maybe the similarity between twin peaks and night country um and it's one that i'm open to because i think as long as it preserves humanity's culpability because i think what's interesting to me about the internal-external idea is if both can be true. Um, You don't need to believe that there's a hellmouth underneath Ennis to understand why atmospherically, contextually, people might do bad shit there. People do bad shit anywhere. But then, as to your Mm. point, like, it's real dark a lot of the time. The people who are on the margins are often living on the margins for reasons. They may be choosing to exclude Mm. themselves from society. I like the idea of the internal forces that make us that 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 fuel the choices that we make as adult humans you can't really show that artistically unless you externalize it and create a force or a demon or a spiral drawing that i love that i mean that that's the best storytelling where you lose me is when we are all uh, otherwise good vessels or victims to mm. a supernatural mm-hmm. force um You know, it's it's, which is more important. As long as and it's a delicate balancing act. But like, I'm I'm interested in the human story first, and the rest second. And weirdly, this may be the only time I've ever been aligned with Nick Pizzolatto in anything. I kind of think he (laughs) thinks that too, which is why the again, this might be just my hobby horse. As someone who has not revisited the series, keeps riding. But my sense was. The supernatural stuff was cool and interesting and atmospheric and evocative, and Kerry Fukunaga ran with a lot of it, but it was window dressing to the story that yes. he wanted to tell. And it's just, it's in, it's particularly, it's compelling to me, but not necessarily, I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, that Issa Lopez seems much more motivated by the window dressing at this moment, or at least in Pizzolato's conception of it. It's like an inverse. Well,
2: I think, yes, and she has said that. Mm-hmm. She said that from the start, that she's telling an inverted story Season tech, uh, true Detective Season 1, that True Detective Season 1 is incredibly male in this, like, warm, swampy environments, blah, blah, blah. And she's mm-hmm, like, let's mm-hmm. make it cold, let's make it dark, and let's make it very female-focused. And so, in that sense, the inversion of the triangle on the supernatural front could make sense. What I suspect is true, and I could be wrong, what I suspect is true is... Is something she's been very clear about, which is that she had already written Night Country when HBO said, We want to make True Detective. So, to circle back to the IP conversation that started this episode, this is Cloverfield esque slapping an IP to words in front of a project that was already conceived. So, like the Rust Cole connection or the Tuttle or the Spiral, like all that stuff is stuff she has injected to make it fit with the larger True Detective universe. But the horror, that's Issa Lopez. So like, you know, I suspect any, like what makes a true detective story a true detective story is a question everyone covering the show has been asking Mm -hmm. themselves. Like when you hand a universe over to a different creator, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: okay, so what makes this a true detective story? And I I suspect we're going to be on the back foot on this because actually this is a night country story with Mm -hmm. a true detective veneer.
0: And
1: I think we'll be back foot on the story until there, there are more. You know, I I continue to think, and I said this even when I wasn't loving the Pizzolatto iterations, that this is uniquely ripe for uh, allowing other people to drive. You know, I I think determining that question is open enough, but the specifics of it are set enough to allow it to be successful through multiple showrunners and multiple visions. And I think what would probably serve this show best going forward would be that the next person, if if this passes on, you know, to, to another filmmaker someone with a completely different interest, someone who's also interested in detective stories, but what they bring to it might be a different genre um, of in as, as terms of a secondary yeah. passion.
2: Yeah, and so what it might just be is what the True Detective brand is is at least one, if not two, uh, movie stars or big actors yeah. that you are excited to see are detectives somewhere distinctive. Yep. Uh, investigating something kind of horrific. There
1: have been worse premises for anthology series, you know. Yeah. Um, and then if you spackle on a couple of references to Tuttle for fun for the for the fans, I mean. But I, yeah. it, the question is, one thing that I'm interested in also, and this is the sort of the meta narrative on top of watching the show, is um, I, Chris had Issa on and they had a wonderful conversation. And she seems great.
2: Great. Yeah.
1: Um, she's also extremely online, which worries me. Um, I
2: almost brought this up when we were talking about Twin Peaks earlier and people being in conversation because that was one of my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite Andy Greenwald throwaways of all time is Chris is saying something about what how Issa responded to something and you just like muttered, she's online too much. Yes,
1: like. I think this deeply. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about this. I know uh, because it, both in the spirit of like David Lynch doesn't say anything and it's better. Yeah, um, But yeah. I also, I was, th- people, this is weird, we're talking, like True Detective, we're telling stories in different timelines when you hear to Stick the Landing, Twin Peaks, I am thinking of Issa Lopez when I'm talking about something similar, which is to say- I almost um, brought it up. She yeah. seems like such a genuine, good faith, creative person who is enjoying experiencing the show with fans. She wanted to make something popular. That's not a sin. Uh, not even popular, but like widescreen. Um, mm-hmm. But she's also out there parrying and in the trenches. And I, my experience as a human who's been online is that you just get muddied no matter how good your intentions are. And Mm -hmm. my read of it through three episodes is that she, the Fiona Shaw character had a husband and the ghost, that was all in her night country story. Right. She was like, oh, I'll give him a last name. And he's, and, and, and she thought that was fun. And it is fun. And it's a nice little thing. It's a bit of connective tissue and retconning that works for the project, which is not just night country. It's true detective night country. But by doing that and sort of smiling about it, there are those toxic fan bros who are like, you're getting your night country and my true detective and think, or even not the toxic part, that the the genuine Redditor part that's just like, ah, I'm going to unpack this and, you know, reveal the connection between these shows that didn't have a connection other than Issa Lopez being like, cool.
2: I I think that that's just a good lesson to learn as we head into the, the back three of the season is just sort of these connections are probably just a gloss on top of an existence story and you shouldn't hold it, take it too seriously. But but to your point, on the one hand, I agree with you. You and I both know that the best way to win a Twitter argument is to not even start one. Yes. And just walk away. Yes. Um, or any social media Log off, argument. Kids. Yes. Um, but um the thing about the thing I would say in Issa's defense about that is that there were people who were not giving the show a chance to. Yeah. from the jump that's true just because it's led by two women honestly Um, not hashtag not all fans but <laughs> certainly some yeah. I've certainly seen it so you know she her attitude might be like well listen if they're gonna be that way anyway I might as well sort of have the fun that I, I can have Um, yeah, I, don't I know. think
1: that's fair have you do you watch ahead are you ahead of the audience with Shoe Detective Night Country?
2: No, uh-uh. I'm staying pure and clean so that I can theorize.
1: Okay, I am the same way, so I won't ask you for anything else other than to say we should, we should unite the streams at the end of the season since we have a bunch of different takes on a show that I think we're all enjoying, but I think we're all enjoying yeah. at different temperatures and speeds.
2: Yes, I agree. And to your point earlier about Nicole Kidman feeling like mm-hmm. she sticks out mm-hmm. of the cast, uh, Jenny Foster really feels to me like she folds in. Like she's folded in. I her. totally agree. Yeah.
1: But also, that's yeah. why John Hawks is in that part. That's why Christopher Eccleston is in that part. Um, I, yeah,
2: but you and I know who John Hawks and Christopher Eccleston are, but they're not like major. Oh, I don't mean stars. because the
1: audience is, is like they're not worthy of her. I just mean that they are such veteran, established, talented they're performers. So good. But I think what you're also saying, and I don't want to bury it, is that. She's a different kind of performer, playing a different type of role mm-hmm. than Nicole Kidman. We're not choosing sides, whatever. They they all have their things. But Jodie Foster does seem to be, maybe this comes from being a director or whatever also, but she seems to be throwing herself into the ensemble in a way. She's blending. Where, yeah. But again, it's also the way it's written, because Nicole Kidman is supposed to be floating above everything in her grief cloud um, with her. She does a lot of Pilates, can tell by her back. When she's scrubbing <laughs> the floor. I admired that.
2: Yeah. And and there's a the bath scene and a lot of backless dresses. She's like, I didn't work this hard exactly. to not show you what I got. Yeah. Um,
1: so just some housekeeping before we let you go. Joe, people can listen to you regularly on the Ringerverse, on House of R prestige television podcast. Am I forgetting anything?
2: Childlike Content is the other one. Oh,
1: nice. Yes. And also your book MCU is out. Um and just some housekeeping for the watch. Chris is swanning about the country for his other (laughs) podcast, whatever. Um, Because of that, we will not have a new episode of The Watch on Sunday night this week. Chris and I will be recording in our normal slot on Monday. It'll go up Monday. We'll be talking True Detective. We'll be talking Monsieur Spade. We've got to get to Masters of the Air at some point. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's too much TV for me.
2: It's a lot, but I love how you guys are all in on Monsieur Spade.
1: I mean, it's how could we the not? The most
2: on-brand, uh, the watch thing. I'm Very watch core.
1: That's the only one I really want to be covering. I mean, I think that's not a surprise <laughs> to drop at the end of this podcast. But um,
2: Well, you love you love the croupier. You love Clive Owen. So I, here we are.
1: Mul- you've been on this podcast twice. <laughs> Friend of the pod. Yeah. Come on.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it is such a pleasure to podcast with you. Not once today, but twice. You will be on not one, but two episodes of Stick the Landing in the next few weeks. Um, Joanna Robinson, you're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Kai McMullen, for producing all of it. Truly a legendary performance by you.